0: The next period of the Mesozoic was the Jurassic period, 201.3 million to 145 million years ago. The rifting that seems to have triggered the Triassic mass extinction event continued at a slow pace. The ancestors of the modern continents were beginning to break apart for the first time, with the most dynamic change occurring along the center of Pangaea. Starting around 180 million years ago, deep rivers began to cut through the north of the supercontinent and split it into two major chunks, the long-lived Gondwana in the southern hemisphere, and the new continent of Laurasia, composed of North America and Eurasia in the Northern Hemisphere. The rivers widened more and more and became a great sea. This was the formation of the Atlantic Ocean, and towards the end of the period, around 148 million years ago, it was as wide as Saudi Arabia or Western Europe. Speaking of Europe, the lands that would become this subcontinent had flooded and turned into a series of islands or an archipelago. It wouldn't be until the end of the Jurassic that Gondwana itself started to rift apart, with the lands of Indo-Madagascar, India and Madagascar, and Sahul, Australia and New Guinea, moving southward, as Africa and South America slowly began to split as well. The breakup of Pangaea marks the end of the great Panthalassic Ocean, now replaced by the Pacific Ocean. All the land masses of the earth were beginning to fragment into separate continents, and this would dramatically affect the variety of living things. With the mostly homogeneous faunas and floras now being separated, not just by deserts or mountains, but by entire oceans, distinct biogeography was under way. In the oceans, these changes were spearheaded by the evolution of new marine organisms. Most prominent was the replacement of key ocean phytoplankton. Phytoplankton, that is, photosynthesizing microbes that float in the water, were previously dominated by green algae. These relatives of land plants had suffered a heavy blow during the Permian and Triassic extinction events, and now that the general chemistry of the oceans had changed and the levels of nutrients had shifted, their rule was being overthrown by the red algae who could better inhabit these new seas. Among these new phytoplankton were the dinoflagellates and coccolithophores. The former had certainly evolved early in the Proterozoic, but the latter were newcomers. Coccolithophores cover their bodies in thick plates called coccoliths, where they get their name. And when these plankton died, their shells sank onto the sea floor and gradually became converted into a new form of limestone called chalk. Dinoflagellates are often well known today because some species form great red blooms in the seas that poison whatever mollusks happen to be present which in turn can harm people who eat them. Marine invertebrates were flourishing thanks to the change in plankton, which promoted the establishment of new ocean food webs. New groups of scleractinian corals and sponges formed small reefs along the warm, shallow seas and provided homes for different animals, including the first tube worms, who formed thin tubes made of minerals that protect their soft bodies while they filter feed. Among the mollusks, the aminoids increased in number, and many forms grew to impressive sizes of two feet in diameter or more. It was in the Jurassic that the cephalopods, who abandoned their outer shells in place of interior shells, like bellumnoids, or just lost them altogether, the octopodes and the squids, became more important. Bellumnoids in particular would have formed great swarms as they patrolled the seas in search of fish to eat, snagging them with mineralized hooks on their arms. From the shrimp like decapods emerged the first true crabs and lobsters. The cnidarians continued to do well, and crinoids still formed great forests in some parts of the seas, though they were being overshadowed by the more common sea stars and urchins. Marine invertebrates saw new developments too. By the middle of the Jurassic, around 170 million years ago, most of the major ray-finned fish lineages had evolved, including the ancestors of sturgeons, gars, herring, tarpoon, eels, and carp. Among these fishes emerged a lineage of large filter-feeding species, the pachycormids, who reached maximum lengths of 52 feet. From the cartilaginous fishes emerged the first rays, which flattened their bodies and became bottom-trawling predators of hard-shelled invertebrates. Marine reptiles complemented their distant relatives, with the ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs reaching greater importance. One lineage of plesiosaurs, called pliosaurs, became the major ocean predators of the Jurassic, sprouting enormous heads lined with sharp teeth for ripping up fishes and other marine reptiles. They too reached impressive sizes, with Pliosaurus funcii estimated at 27 feet in length. In the air, the pterosaurs had continued their presence and dominion, and there were new varieties that exploited different food sources. Some fancied the seashores and had teeth like toothpicks for spearing small fish. Others became very small and chased after flying insects, snapping them in their bear-trap-shaped jaws. Still others seemed to demonstrate changes brought about by sexual selection. In evolution, the concept of sexual selection states that organisms will compete with each other for the favor of their mates, who select the individuals that will be beneficial partners and good parents. Thus, it is different from natural selection, where it is the environment that selects for advantageous adaptations. Sexual selection has been able to explain the strange gallery of horns and antlers, long and colorful feathers, sails and spines, and other seemingly extravagant structures often found on living things. The large antlers of moose and elk, the colors and feathers of peafowl and pheasants, and the manes of lions were the result of this form of evolution. These features are sexually dimorphic, meaning that they are different between males and females, and can be used to distinguish the two. The northern cardinal, for example, has the males a bright shade of red, while the females are a light brown. In pterosaurs, there is possible evidence that sexual selection was at work on some species, where the presence of head crests seemed to show a marked difference in size between sexes. It is likely that these structures, which would have certainly been brightly colored and patterned, were viewed by pterosaurs as indicators of overall health and physicality, and over time would have encouraged the production of even more extravagant crests. On land, the dinosaurs had a strong hold as the major herbivores and carnivores on all terrestrial ecosystems. By now they had produced enormous forms had begun to really diversify into all of their major lineages, including all of the forms familiar with laypeople today. A number of theropod lineages had evolved truly massive predators, seemingly in response to the larger prey species that were now available as a food source. These dinosaurs had adapted their front teeth to have more of a pointed shape than a simple vertical shaft. However, the skulls were often not strong enough to deliver hard-grabbing bites towards their prey. They were keener to run up to prey animals and slash at them with their open mouths, leaving deep cuts and selecting small bites of flesh, leaving the other dinosaurs to eventually succumb to blood loss and death. These Jurassic theropods often had ornamental bumps and crests atop their heads too, perhaps another instance of sexual selection at work. Two familiar Jurassic theropods are the horned Ceratosaurus, which sported a row of hard bony bumps along its back, and the larger Allosaurus, that had a wider chest and deeper face. By comparing these two theropods, you can tell some curious things about their behaviors. Ceratosaurus has particularly small arms with stubby fingers and short claws. Meanwhile, its jaws were adorned with very long teeth. Allosaurus's arms were rather long, tipped with lengthy and hooked claws, while the teeth were shorter in its jaws. This implies that Ceratosaurus relied more on its mouth for taking down prey, while Allosaurus may have used its arms to latch onto prey animals while it slashed at them with its teeth. Incidentally, stress tests on Allosaurus skulls show remarkable strength, and its overall size suggests that it was going after larger animals than Ceratosaurus, which may have been content with medium-sized prey. These two animals did share the same environment and similar prey and would likely have avoided direct competition by hunting at different localities similar to how lions and leopards interact today. There was another group of theropods active during the Jurassic, one that is of great importance to many paleontologists. These are the Silurosaurs, and for much of their early history they remained small-bodied and certainly steered clear of the larger theropods in the air ecosystem. Cellarosaurs are distinguished by an increase in brain size and a lengthening of the digits. There was a particular trait that perhaps evolved among the common ancestors of the dinosaurs that became very pronounced among the celosaurs filamentous covering. These fur-like protofeathers would have acted as insulating structures that aided in keeping their internal body temperature warm, and later on may have served as a template for display structures and colors, another outcome of sexual selection. One lineage of celerosaurs, the tyrannosaurs, evolved towards the middle of the Jurassic period. They had fused their nasal bones together to give them a much more powerful bite, but they were, for a time, small to medium-sized animals. Another lineage, the manoraptors, modified their arms to make them longer, their wrists became more specialized for folding against the body, and they changed their legs to allow a more crouched posture. Their protofeathers had now developed into proper feathers, with pinaceous or quill-like plumage that would have formed large wings on their forelimbs, and rows along their tails. It was 165 million years ago that the direct ancestors of birds evolved from among the manoraptors. The most familiar of these animals is Archaeopteryx. But in all honesty, it would have not looked very different from the other feathered solarosaurs that shared the world with them. These were not flying animals at first, more content for short gliding in their mostly ground-based existence, though it appears possible that these early birds could flap their wings enough to remain balanced on prey items while they dispatched them, or flap their wings to run up vertical surfaces like tree trunks. These are two behaviors that birds today do. Birds are, quite literally, avian reptiles. The other herbivorous dinosaurs were diversifying as well. By the end of the early Jurassic, the sauropods were all quadrupedal animals that supported their weight on columnar limbs tipped with padded digits. The hands gradually lost all but one claw, while the feet were supported by padded soles. The sauropods of the Jurassic grew to immense sizes and increased the lengths of their necks for higher browsing capabilities. Now the treetops were no longer safe from plant predators thanks to their height. Their nasal bones became enlarged, meaning that in life these dinosaurs would have sported massive nasal chambers. It's unclear why this trait formed, paleontologists have tied them to better smelling, to the production of better calls, or to both. By the end of the Jurassic, two major groups of sauropods had evolved, distinguished by their general anatomy. The diplodocoids, of which the 70-foot brontosaurus and the almost 100-foot diplodocus belong, have long snouts with peg-shaped teeth which are all collected at the front of their jaws. This implies that these dinosaurs were using their mouths like rakes, scraping up conifer needles and ferns. The Macrinarians, including the over 60-foot brachiosaurus, are so named due to their boxy and blunt skulls with particularly large nasal openings. Their teeth ranged throughout their jaws, like earlier sauropods, and this meant that they engulfed more plant matter. In shape, diplodocoids were built slenderly and had long, whip-like tails that may very well have been used like whips for defense, though the jury is out on that. Macrinarians, in contrast, were bulky and built upwards, meaning that their long necks were always reaching upwards, like giraffes today. Ornithischian fossils became more common during the Jurassic, and there is evidence that, like Silurosaurs, all their descendant groups had evolved from small bipedal dinosaurs covered in filamentous fuzz. Though probably omnivorous at first, later groups shifted to herbivory. The ornithopods were among the first and only dinosaurs to develop proper chewing, whereby they ground up their food through the sliding of their teeth against each other, versus the other dinosaurs which simply bit up their food and swallowed it whole. Chewing allows for more nutrients to be gathered from plant food, so ornithopods became master herbivores and suits spread out across the globe. The group of ornithischians called Marginocephalians is distinguished by their namesake feature, a stretching and increasing in size of the bones behind the skull which formed a great margin. They remained very small animals in their early evolution, using their sharp beaks to nip at plants, and perhaps small animals at well. The third lineage of Ornithischians that really owned the Jurassic were the Thyreophorans, or armored dinosaurs. They developed into primarily quadrupedal animals, with massive guts, thick legs, and, yes, armor plating on their bodies. One subset of this group was the Stegosaurs whose armor was transformed into a flattened and paired row of plates along their backs. These plates would have been useless as defensive organs, and so may have performed a role in sexual display. Their tails were lined with their own row of bony spines which, when swung, could deliver a deadly blow to any would-be predator. The other subset were the Ankylosaurs, who kept their body armor and took it to extreme levels, covering their faces in strong bone. These animals were low browsers mostly going after ferns and conifer brushes and lapping up the leaves with a massive prehensile tongue. The other reptiles of the Jurassic remained minor characters, but they were undergoing their own experiments. One lineage of the surviving pseudosuchians, the crocodilomorphs, started out as small upright animals that ran through the underbrush with long spindly legs. Later descendants included forms that entered the oceans and became marine reptiles, complete with finned tails and paddle-like limbs and others that hung out near rivers and lakes as ambush predators. From the Lapidosaurs finally emerged the tuataras, today confined to a single species in New Zealand, and the lizards, which included the first skinks, geckos, and snakes. Snakes, indeed, are legless lizards today, but the ancestral snakes of a hundred and seventy million years ago still had reduced and significant limbs. Over time they would lose their forelimbs first, and later their hind limbs. But just why and where they lost their limbs is unclear. Paleontologists are torn between snakes losing their legs due to a burrowing lifestyle and snakes losing their legs because they evolved as aquatic animals. Meanwhile, among amphibians, frogs finally developed their ability to hop and truly lost their tails. The two other living groups of amphibians, the lizard-like salamanders and the legless burrowing sicilians are represented by very good fossils at this time, though they almost certainly evolved earlier in the Triassic. Land arthropods experience new evolution, too, with spiders in particular undergoing radiation of new species thanks to the evolution of spinnerets. There were new groups of insects appearing too, the first earwigs and the first moths, who had thin wings and only later developed their thin proboscis for sipping up water. The sawflies had given rise to the first wasps, which modified their plant-cutting ovipositor into a piercing organ or stinger. This tells us that wasps became predators that injected venom into their prey to subdue it. At the other end of the insect world, the earliest fleas included some dramatically large species up to an inch in length. These would not have been the jumping species we know today, but rather lumbering, louse-like insects that would have taken bites out of mammals or small dinosaurs. Jurassic mammals began to really explore new niches under the forests of gymnosperms and ferns that dominated the landscape. While some mammals remained small, shrew-like creatures like their ancestors, others became semi-aquatic, like beavers, or took the gliding, like flying squirrels or went underground as burrowers, like gophers. What must be understood is that the main types of mammals today were not yet established during the Jurassic, and that all these new mammals belong to now extinct lineages. To continue this episode, please go to part three.